This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. Welcome to my office, third floor, CBS Bureau, downtown Washington, D.C. Behind me, you see a little wall of uh, movie posters. Network, the greatest movie ever made. Take it from me, the greatest movie ever made. See a little bit of Miles Davis up there, all the president's men. Uh, The topic this week is cybersecurity, not a new one for this show. We've had cybersecurity experts on the show several times. It's an ongoing conversation, and our guest this week is back a second time. He's in the private sector now, but the last time he was on our show, he was deeply involved at a governmental level in cybersecurity. His name is Chris Krebs. He ran an agency called CISA. Chris, it's good to see you. Tell my audience what CISA is. Hey, Major, good to be with you. CISA is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. It's at the Department of Homeland Security. It is the youngest agency in the federal government, at least by my count, and it's responsible for helping government agencies in the private sector uh, protect themselves against cyber threats. Okay, as you well know, Chris, in this particular region of the country, mid-Atlantic and southeastern United States, either because of panic buying or whatever, there's been this colonial pipeline story running across front pages and leading newscasts for the better part of a week. That's a hack situation. That's a ransomware situation. Walk my audience through the fundamentals of that story. So we've got Colonial Pipeline. It is owned by a couple different um, petroleum or energy companies, and it runs from the Houston, Texas area all the way up to New York Harbor, and it transports about 45% of the refined product. That's the gasoline we put in our cars, assuming you're not driving a, a Tesla. Uh, or the aviation gas that flows into the uh, the planes we used to fly around on and hopefully we'll be flying a, a, on again soon. Um, and it is the largest pipeline uh, company by uh, in the country. And what happened, as I understand it, is sometime last week, maybe earlier, but sometime last week is when we were first really made aware of it, Friday afternoon. Right. Uh, what's what's known as a, uh, a ransomware crew known as DarkSide, Uh, got into the network of a colonial pipeline and locked them up using ransomware. Now, DarkSide's an interesting crew. It is an affiliate group, which means you've got, it's kind of like Ocean's Eleven, where you've got the mastermind, you've got the getaway car, you've got the 
the the safe cracker and the IT. So the, you know they diversify, and ransomware is a really really profitable business these days, and you're seeing specialization. So the dark side uh, developers they they make the the ransomware, and then effectively they they lease their platform out to a set of of partners and affiliates and. Uh, a lot of cases, it's um, it's it's Russian youth. It is kids, teenagers, twenty-year-olds that uh, have been really successful rolling this out and uh, locking up mon- uh, companies. So you said they locked up the data. What what happens? What is the actual thing that invades? Is it an email? Is it through phishing? What is the way that it goes in? And then once it gets in, so my audience understands this. Then what happens to lock up this yeah. data? So it's not clear specific to Colonial what happened, but uh, a company in in general. Yeah, a a company called FireEye, which is is generally considered one of the best cybersecurity firms in the world, uh, has has responded to a number of dark side attacks or ransomware events over the last several months, and they've uh, they've determined that based on their their responses and investigations, there are three typical ways that the the crews get into networks. And the first is just like you pointed out in an email, a phishing email, where they send a, a employee of the company an email. It's got a link in there uh, and you click on the link and you go to it. And one way or the other, they get your account login or they're able to compromise your your machine. So that's that's the typical way um, that that most of these events happen. There, there are others. Um, uh, that include uh, vulnerabilities or other uh, unpatched systems that sit, you know, on the perimeter of a network that, you know, in these days of COVID, when we go home, we have to use VPNs, virtual private networks to log back into the corporate network. When you don't patch those, um, it allows a bad guy to, you know, run some code against that that appliance or that that device and then they're able to gain access to the system. And then once in, this is where they get really interesting. They they come in and they quietly, maybe sometimes not so quietly, maybe sometimes the alerts get uh, ignored, but they snoop around your network and they figure out who you are as a company. You know what what business, what vertical, what segment, and then. They figure out if you have insurance payment. Now, that's what some crews do. I'm not sure if DarkSide does this, but they figure out if you have ransomware insurance. And then they figure out what your profit margins are and what your revenues are. And that's how they they figure out how much they're going to ask you to pay for. The other interesting thing about DarkSide is they take data out. They exfiltrate data and they put it somewhere else. And so they're a you know, they're a double clicker in terms of how they extort money from you. So the and, po- and so a company essentially finds itself in a almost no-win situation. If they've exfiltrated that data, there's only one way to get it back, as I understand it. You've got to pay the man. You've got to pay the ransom. And even if they haven't exfiltrated, they can lock it up or make it unreachable and you need that data for your day-to-day operations. So again, you got to pay the man. Is that am I understanding yeah, so it right? The the exfiltration or the the theft of the data is almost their insurance policy. And so they get those really business sensitive stuff, and they say, "Look, you need to pay uh, to unlock your network." Sometimes they'll say, "You need to pay twice. You need to pay to unlock the network, and you need to pay to make sure we don't embarrass you 
There's another interesting angle here is that they they have kind of an it's it's almost like an insider pass, an early access preview of the data that they'll give to some criminals so they can play the stock market in advance of the hack. So there's there's you know they're playing like five, you know fifth dimension chess here uh, from a criminal perspective. It's 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 really quite quite fascinating. And when you were at CISA leading that agency, how much did you know, if anything at all, about DarkSide specifically? So DarkSide specifically, you got to remember that I'm coming up on my six-month uh, anniversary of being the last person fired by President Trump by tweet, uh, Twitter. Um, and this crew really didn't, as I understand it, uh, hit the big time or start making act, uh, moves till about August of last year. They seem to be an evolution of another ransomware gang known as Revel or Revel or possibly another one called Gan Crab. And, and really the way I'm thinking about it is there are successful ransomware crews in Russia that kind of, they they build up, they break down. It's almost like the, the Bill Walsh coaching uh, tree of football. You know, it's how it works. They evolve, they get better. They, they make partnerships and friends. They move on to other, other operations. So this crew has been operating, but they've been super active in the last several months. In that tree of relationships, do they share uh, winnings or haul from ransomware or do they keep all the money themselves? Well, so so what happens particularly, you know, I think is, as I understand the, the dark side crew is that the developers that, that make the encryption software, um, they partner with the affiliates, the affiliates go get access to the network and then they deploy the ransomware. There's a profit sharing model where the affiliate really does a lot of the dirty, riskier work. And then whatever they take back, you know, let's say it's, a, it's 10 million, um, they'll have to share a certain percentage, maybe maybe three or four million uh, back with the developer crew. And Chris, before, I got about 30 seconds, so I'm going to get this answer from you. So you said they have powerful encryption. Is it so powerful that a private company can't break it? That's what their lock is? It's pretty industry standard encryption that, yeah, that can withstand most, uh, you know, brute force attacks. Interesting. So a company, once it's notified, hey, we've got your data or we're in there and we've encrypted and you can't do anything about it, basically has one choice, pay the man or continue to lose the data. Chris Krebs is our special guest. We're going to talk all about cybersecurity and its real life impacts. I'm Major Garrett, segment two of The Takeout in just a second. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stuart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Chris Krebs, he ran the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Administration or agency for the entire Trump administration. As he mentioned, he was the last person fired by President Trump via Twitter. But he did run that agency. What are you doing now, Chris? So uh, I'm doing a lot of things. Uh, first, I set up a risk management, a cybersecurity and disinformation risk management consultancy with 
uh, a good friend, Alex Stamos, who used to be with Facebook. And so you know, one of our first clients there was SolarWinds. Uh, after they got uh, hacked by the Russians, we came in and we're helping them you know, build back better. Uh, also working with the Aspen Institute, uh, co-chairing an in, uh, a, uh, a commission on counter disinformation uh, with former with uh, CBS alumni, Katie Couric and a, and a few others. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a, a number of diff- different uh, academic uh, endeavors. Understood. So uh, we'll get to solar winds in a second. Uh, it has been reported by other news organizations that um, the company involved Colonial Pipeline had to pay $5 million ransom to get its data unlocked. Does that sound about right to you? And what is it and what was the government policy? And I know the government policy under the Biden administration is we from a government's perspective, discourage payment, but it happens, right? So, you know, I haven't seen any independent or official confirmation, whether from Colonial or from the U.S. government, that Colonial did in fact pay to unlock. I've seen a couple different stories. The first was, no, they did not. The second was, yes, they did on Friday. And then third is that, yes, they did on Monday. Uh, the, the fourth little wrinkle here is that, uh, and it's kind of like the, the, the womp womp, is that they paid but the decryptor tool didn't work fast enough. So they went ahead and rebuilt the networks anyway. So it's almost a freebie 5 million if, if, if it's true back to the, uh, back to the ransomware actors. But, but from a policy perspective, I think over the last several years, we've, shit, we've seen a pretty significant shift away from, you know, we don't have a policy towards the end of the last administration, do not pay. And I think we'll ultimately end up in that same spot uh, in the Biden administration. As official policy, but nevertheless, the real world is the real world. Yep. And I've read accounts that, and I believe uh, the DHS Secretary Mayorkas has said 350 million has been paid out in the last calendar year. It's it's great. I mean, ransomware is a business, and business is good. I mean, if you can invest, it's not a bad bet. But but ultimately, this is a criminal enterprise. They're only getting better. They're only getting more brazen. And I think it's it's entirely within the evolution. Uh, evolutionary arc of this this ransomware, it starts getting a lot rougher, uh, particularly with some of those Russian gangs that that are known to have fairly sharp elbows, and uh, that's you know that's one of the many items that scares me a lot about the the state of ransomware right now. And I want to ask you this from a practical perspective, not this is what the government should or shouldn't do, but just as a practical matter, can these criminal enterprises operate in Russia without some understood or implied approval of the Russian government? I have a hard time seeing how it would be possible to make a lot of money where you're driving around in a Lamborghini without the the domestic intelligence services wanting to know who you are, how'd you get that money, looking at bank accounts. It, it is, it's a, you know, it really doesn't make sense to me how that could be possible. I'll add though that there are prior examples of ransomware crews coordinating and collaborating with Russian intelligence service. So there was a there was a group named Evil Corp that was indicted uh, last year, um, and the 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 Department of Justice linked them to the the Russian FSB, which is the predecessor. Or I'm sorry, the successor to the to the KGB. Right. And so should we think about this as acts of economic war by other means, not state actions of war economically, but very close to it? 
Well, I think the way to look at it is it develops a strategic cyber workforce within Russia that they may be able to call on at a later date. The second thing, as I've already mentioned, is it gives uh, Russian kids and, and you know, younger kids uh, something to do and bring some money home and keep, you know, keep them from not having, uh, you know, from having idle hands domestically. The third thing, though, is it does align with the strategic objectives of some of the Russian intelligence services, which is to make life difficult for us here in the United States and keep us distracted. And that was one of my biggest concerns in the run up to the 2020 election was both the explosion of ransomware and some of the other cyber activity that Russians were doing is that our incident response teams and the, F uh, the FBI's investigation team and the private sector, they were running all over the country investigating uh, incidents and that's only gotten worse. So uh, what we might see is uh, a kind of a, a, it's a denial of service by distraction. And let me ask you a really possibly dumb question, but I think it might be on the lines of some of my audience. So we have a lot of kids who game here all the time. They're incredibly adept. At, don't we have any equal, equivalently motivated hackers? Can't we do this to them? Well, I think we need to be careful about using the word hacker. Hacker is uh, unfortunately... Or, 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 yeah. or people who are adept at this particular kind of either intrusion or invasion via... Tech, uh, digital means. We certainly have a growing uh, pool of of uh, capable security researchers. I know that I, I had so, uh, one that interned for me uh, at CISA and is now at Stanford, a kid named Jack Cable, who is just one of the brightest minds that has interned uh, at DoD and elsewhere has developed tools. He's uh, he actually it's a great story. He, uh, about two or three weeks ago, um, there was a new malware or a new ransomware strain that, that he saw posted on Twitter and he contacted the company, got a little bit of information, and he was able to actually find out that there was a vulnerability in the, in the encryption tool. So to your point, if it's done right, it's really hard to crack, but they're not perfect. And so Jack was able to find a, vul a vulnerability in the encryption or the ransomware tool itself and he cracked it and he saved a bunch of companies, you know, somewhere around $30,000. So we, we do have, uh, we, we do have some, some, some uh, good ones on our side too. The reason I raised that is I was reading an academic report for an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins who said, one of the things that America has to confront is we have a shortage, a very visible shortage of people with the technical skills to either build out defenses or, help companies shore up their own defenses, true? I think those are the the claims and the numbers, but it's also a bit of a fatalistic approach. Um, I, I think we need to be focusing on, you know, rather than building in additional defenses and additional cybersecurity, you know, workforce or talent, let's make the products that we use on a daily basis more secure and safer by design. And, and that's part of what uh, just the other day, the, the Biden administration, released an executive order that will improve the software supply chain from a security perspective. It's going to really raise the bar. And it's just a, it's a great move using the power of the purse or the collective purchasing power of the federal government to say, look, we buy a lot of stuff from you guys. Make it better. Be better. So was there a conversation about that kind of approach in the Trump administration? Well, we were always working with, with uh, industry to uh, to, to make sure that their products were better, they're working on a security roadmap. 
But, but if I hear you, but if I hear you, this executive order has more teeth. Oh my goodness, this is a dramatic uh, game change. I think in the terms in, in terms of cybersecurity in the federal government and industry, and what it really takes is uh, a you know a committed uh, leadership vision, and that you're not just going to you know you're going to prioritize cybersecurity, and you're not going to take uh, you know we're not going to take the status quo any longer, and that's what you're seeing. A, a, uh, just a, a, a jet, they're jettisoning the 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 traditional approach. So, uh, fifty seconds. Tell my audience what was and what's now changed. That's most important about this Biden executive order. So, this Biden executive order dramatically increases the security expectations of of the software products that are uh, sold to the U.S. government. And the good news there is that all the stuff that the federal government buys. We buy, CBS buys, I buy at home, you buy whatever company or, or agency you work for, state or local level. So there's a cascading effect. This is what's known as leverage. Right. And that's true of whether the United, the, the government does a th- uh, something where it ensures a medical procedure or does something else. It has this cascading effect into the private sector. And what you're saying is this executive order is likely to do the same, right? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Chris Krebs is our special guest. Deep dive into cybersecurity related issues. And when we come back, more on what the Biden administration is or isn't doing in terms of the infrastructure suggestions it's made to Congress on this front. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of the takeout in just one moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. He is one of the most famous people in the world of cybersecurity. His name is Chris Krebs. Chris, um, the Biden administration has come to Congress, $2.3 trillion for infrastructure. If I have followed you accurately on Twitter, you have said repeatedly, hey, where's the cybersecurity component here, right? Yeah, I, uh, you know, everything we use, infrastructure, Everything around us is is somehow connected, or measured, or censored by uh, the by some sort of uh, internet connectivity, and that means that whatever investment we we make has to have some element of cybersecurity baked into it. I think we have to start at our state and local agencies. We have to get them on more modern systems, and and then that extends to whatever the infrastructure investment is. And it's got to be bigger than just a broadband investment. Right. So what are we talking about and how much might it cost? Oh, the sky's the limit on the cost. It's what it, whatever, <laughs> frankly, you have a, you have an appetite for, uh, it, you know, I think at a, at a minimum uh, for state and local agencies, uh, we're talking, a, you know, probably a couple billion just to get them onto more modern systems and into the cloud. I think for whatever the, the infrastructure packages are highways, um, uh, transportation systems, bridges. You know, it, it, you have to tack something onto it, and um, I think there's a, there's probably some additional work that needs to be done just to figure out what that number is. And was that a conspicuous gap in the infrastructure proposal from your perspective that they just were not seeing what they ought to have seen and counting? I mean, there are those who would say, well, if you're going to count home health care centers or daycare centers as infrastructure, you ought to include cyber infrastructure as well. So I, I don't know what led to the final proposal or the final package. I do know that Congress uh, will be the one that really pull it together yes. and get it across the line. And some of the conversations I've had is there is a huge appetite and amount of interest 
into baking in a pretty substantial cybersecurity investment. And whether it's, uh, you know, the... And you and I both know that the Colonial Pipeline situation just ramped it up by a factor of 10. It's, I, well, I mean, I think that's worth talking about, right? It, it You know, how many more wake-up calls do we need? That's that's the question that I, I ask. But when you see pictures of uh, people waiting in line and people putting gasoline and in plastic bags in the back, you know, the trunks of their car, uh, you you just affected millions and millions of Americans in a in a really, you know, almost uniquely American way. You took their gasoline away from them, and uh, or at least made them nervous about ready supply. Absolutely. Which you know, yeah. to be clear, there there is plenty of supply out there. Um, we're actually at historical low consumption levels. It's just that through panic buying, people were pulling out of the ground, out of the tanks, right. faster than <laughs> the resupply trucks could put it back in. And it's just, it's the human condition again. Right. And I'm not going to criticize anyone for that. That's a human reaction to a unstable situation. And we've all lived through months upon months of unstable, uncertain situations. And that's how you acted. I'm not going to criticize you for that. What I think the part of our conversation that's most relevant to this, Chris, is the difficulty, and this has been true as long as I've been watching the cybersecurity conversation in Washington. What is the reach of the federal government into private companies? What are their equities? And if the federal government requires things and something bad still happens, who's liable? Who's to blame? All these things keep getting passed back and forth, yep. talked over, and that's been the truth for at least a decade. Am I right? Absolutely. I think you know, table stakes wise right now on requirements, we just need to mandate that anyone that has a ransomware event that gets locked up, you have to report that to the federal government. There's a public policy need there. And the second is that if you're going to pay a ransom, you actually have to go get that cleared through the federal government. Now, that that may mean that people just go dark and go underground, but, but you know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. There's a second piece, though, of the mandatory reporting is that, um, there is certain infrastructure, and I think Colonial would fall under it, where there needs to be uh, a regulatory regime uh, that sets uh, sets security standards and expectations. Right. And if I recall correctly, there was a piece of legislation, I believe, in 1998 or 1999 dealing with the financial institution sector that required at a federal level that financial institutions have super hardened cybersecurity infrastructure. It was part of a banking reform piece of legislation. And... Uh, Graham Leach Bliley, I believe, that was the name of it. But that didn't happen or didn't touch other parts of the private sector. So it looks like we've, we've tried to set this standard at least one part of our economy before. Is that a springboard or at least a something we can use as a reference point to do this for the rest of the economy? I think, you know, there's some good lessons learned from the financial services industry on how to, uh, you know, ensure good execution and security outcomes. But it makes good economic sense too. And, and here's why I say that. A dollar spent on a security investment up front to prevent or rapidly respond to an incident is going to be worth, you know, some number of dollars, you know, $4, four, four or five bucks on the other end in terms of dollar saved on incident response. It's that whole, you know, ounce of prevention. Right. And, and so, again, for my audience, because I always try to help them understand which is more important. In this realm, 
Is legislation more important than this executive order that you were just heaping so much praise on? Or do you need both? And you must have so both. So you're going to need both because the executive order, the, the scope of the executive order is just to federal agencies. But like I said, there will be cascading impacts across and raising the bar, getting security uplift, both in software products and operational technology products, the things that make technology move and spin and work. But there will be, uh, I think there's some there's some conversations on the Hill, but there will be some legislative requirements for the most critical of under uh, infrastructure. Not everything, but look, when you own 45% regionally of a, of a, a you know, a petroleum or refined product distribution, you're pretty critical, I think. Right. So we're going to talk about this for the remaining three minutes of this segment and then all of next segment, solar winds. Uh, as I understand it, that was happening. That penetration was happening for almost a calendar year, undetected by your agency and everyone else. Simple threshold question. How is that possible? Well, it was really quiet. It was really stealthy. Uh, and there's a lack of stick uh, stitching together uh, a handful of the indicators. I mean, I can think back now uh, or immediately after it happened, that there were a couple really interesting events that happened that we, we couldn't explain because we didn't have context. And it, when you kind of figured out what the technique was from the, the Russians, you're like, oh, it makes sense now. So, you know, hindsight's always 2020, but let's be perfectly clear here that, you know, what you see in, uh, in Colonial and in the ransomware event, that is just blocking and tackling crimeware. The SVR sophisticated attack against uh, SolarWinds, and now it looks like there are a number of other companies that they targeted, was 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 really really impressive and really quite strategic. And what was that acronym SVR? What does that mean? The, the, so the SVR is the Russian uh, Foreign Intelligence Service. Got it. Okay. So uh, again, uh, help my audience. What was what is SolarWinds and what happened? Briefly. So SolarWinds is a, uh, in their Orion platform is. So it's a software company. Yeah, it's a software right? company. And it uh, it makes a product that makes your your network and uh, in a, in a company and an enterprise easier to manage. And what happened was somehow um, the, the Russians got into the build process. What that means is when you write all those software lines of code, you've got, you know, a bunch of different pieces of that software that you have to put together in a certain sequence. And the Russians were able to infiltrate that process. And so as, as the, the SolarWinds engineers are putting code in, um, the Russians were able to insert their piece in really quickly, really stealthily, uh, and then it went out to, um, to the customers. And, and then they, they had the ability to monitor, the Russians did, had the ability to monitor where that code landed and it was communicating back with the, the Russian intelligence service um, uh, uh, command and control infrastructure. And so they were able to pick and choose. And ultimately it was, it was somewhere on the order of, of lesser, less, you know, fewer than a hundred uh, uh, companies or agencies compromised, but it was a really sophisticated operation. And I'm going to give you a metaphor. Just give me a yes or no before we go to break. So it would be like in World War II if the Russians had put able, been able to put a spy undetected along an assembly line cranking out munitions for World War II and watching it every single step of the way. It's kind of like that. Yes or no? It's a little bit like that. Yeah. Okay. Very good. More with Chris Krebs and Solar Winds and all cybersecurity on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. Segment four of The Takeout coming right at you. It's 
harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. So, Chris, I gave you that metaphor of a Russian or Soviet spy World War II watching an assembly line of uh, an American company making a tank or an airplane. You said kind of like that, so maybe it's not exactly like that. Is there, is there a better metaphor to think about it? And what is the accumulated value to the Russians for sitting there and lurking for almost a year, watching all this code go out through various software platforms? So, you know, let it, you know, one thing just to clarify, I think, and I mentioned at the top, but, uh, you know, I am working. Yes, of course. Yes, I am working with SolarWinds. So I just right. want to make that perfectly clear to everybody. Um, the, what, what I, the way I think about this is that, um, first off, it was a campaign. So they got into SolarWinds, they got into other companies. So what effectively the Russians did here that was so interesting is historically, when you think about cyber um, cyber attacks and espionage campaigns, they're coming in and they're targeting a single organization. They're coming in the back door, the front door, whatever you want to call it. The difference here was that the Russians figured out that there are key software dependencies that a ton of really interesting companies to them or organizations to them use. So they found points of leverage across the ecosystem, across the U.S. economy, and they went after those organizations that they could then break out from. It's known as a supply chain attack. But really, the other way to think about this is the, the Russian SVR developed a global signals intelligence infrastructure using U.S. companies to go after the targets they wanted. And it's it's quite diabolical in a certain sense, um, but it's also really efficient. So uh, I'm going to ask you to be candid here. and The level of candor might conflict with what you just said, and I'll take the risk. Uh, it has been reported that Solar Winds was not sophisticated very much in its defenses. Uh, there's even some reporting that uh, the development server had a password Solar Winds one two three. I've taken courses here at CBS that would tell me that's a rejectable and terrible password. Uh, I don't. Maybe you can confirm that. Maybe you can't. Uh, if you can, please do. But was Solar Winds ill prepared and? Does it need to up its game? And, and, and are they a cautionary tale? I think there are plenty of lessons learned that everyone can take from SolarWinds. They can take from the recent, uh, there was a, a Microsoft Exchange vulnerability. This one, there, Everyone can do better. And that's, that's the thing that I've been preaching for years and years and years is that everyone can do better. The threats are so uh, diverse right now, where it used to be five years ago, six years ago, where it was just the banks and the defense industrial base companies. Now, just given the number and ease of exploitation, uh, everybody needs to up their game. And so, you know, I, you know I'll let SolarWinds 
uh, talk about uh, the, some of the specifics of the incident. That's not why we were brought in. Um, but Would it be fair to say that their defenses were elemental? Again, I'll let them talk about uh, the status of the, the event. But, you know, the things that, that we have to keep in mind is that there, there are hundreds of thousands of software companies out there, if not more. Um, and security is something that every organization now knows pretty clearly uh, is something you can't take for granted. Right. And so they are without question a cautionary tale. They, look, they are certainly, they've got a new CEO on board in Sudhakar Ramakrishna. They've got a new plan, a roadmap in place, secure by design. And they're trying to lead lead by, uh, lead by um, uh, uh, example. But the last thing I'll note here is that there are lots of organizations out there um, that that are um, that that need to step up to the plate from a corporate citizenship perspective, and that means you need to the industry, you need to work with the security research community, you need to work with the government, and those are the companies that can have a bad day, that can get through it. Um, and, and maintain trust of the customers and of the community. And, and I think that's really kind of the, the differentiator between companies that are they're here to stay. I don't need to tell you that this is a highly partisan time. There are deep political divisions. Yes or no on this issue, because I've read this, but I want your expert opinion. Is this generally a close to bipartisan or nonpartisan issue? And what is your degree of confidence that this year, because of Colonial Pipeline and other developments, there will be cybersecurity legislation to tandem with this very teethy Biden White House executive order? So my experience through, you know, now into a third or fourth administration is that, yes, cybersecurity uh, is a nonpartisan or bipartisan, whichever way you want to cut it, issue. That's certainly the way that I've always approached it. There have been flashes of partisanship throughout, and I think that's just natural, particularly in, in the early days of, of administrations. But, you know, I've, I worked closely with the Obama team. I worked closely with, uh, you know, former Obama uh, officials when I was in government, and I, I, I would expect that to continue. Now, on the on the, the note of legislation, uh, I think that you can expect legislation out of a number of different committees this year. And uh, it is clearly a priority of this administration. I expect it to be a priority for this Congress. Got it. So in the last two and a half minutes we have, before we have to say farewell to our radio audience, it has been said all week that, well, this colonial pipeline raises concerns that we should have broadly about utilities, about nuclear power plants, about other critical infrastructure. Is that true? And should we at some level be freaking out about losing access to power or other things that are on a grid? So our grid in general is fairly resilient. And you may laugh at that, um, given what happened down in Texas uh, over the winter. That was a weatherization issue, though. Uh, they knew it was coming. They didn't weatherize. And that's what happened. Resilience is resilience, though, um, whether it's Mother Nature or a True. you know a, an adversary. Um, I think there's absolutely work to do to make things more secure. Uh, and do public utilities have to step up in the way you said the private sector has to step up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think what what we need to see here is a a set of um, of leaders step forward and say we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna take care of this we're gonna step up I you know I think that in so so does that mean that public utilities commissions have to make this a part of either relicensing or regulation? 
Sorry, can you repeat that? So public utilities commissions. So utilities have to come before them and explain all the things that they're doing. Do they need to say, hey, where's your cybersecurity thing? And if you don't have it, there's going to be a problem. So there, there's a set of um, self-regulated uh, standards known as uh, NERC, uh, where the investor-owned utilities and some of the, the co-ops and the munis also participate. And in, in general, the from electricity perspective, their security is is pretty good. Once you get into the the, the municipals and the co-ops, you have some challenges um, with with rate regulation and how much they can charge. So uh, anything the government can do to step up and provide additional assess, assistance and tools, uh, I think would probably be very appreciated by that team. Right. So everyone knows in this audience, I love to nerd out, and we got a reference to NERC. That's pretty nerdy, but that's what we do here at The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. For our radio audience, we have to say farewell. For those on the podcast platform, CBSN, stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake Especial. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back and welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial, considering, continuing rather our conversation with Chris Krebs. Uh, he is uh, a cybersecurity celebrity. That's a real thing in the cybersecurity world, and he's one of them because he ran CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Administration or Agency, for four years in the Trump administration. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, and this is another nerdy question before we get to the fun and games, Chris. We talked about the private sector. You said there has to be reporting if there is a ransomware event or an intrusion and an exfiltration. And then if you paid ransom, you have to report that. Should that be something that is required by the Securities and Exchange Commission? So companies have to do that, have to report all sorts of things to the SEC. And that's how we sort of monitor the truthfulness of what private sector companies are doing. Yes. Publicly yeah. traded, though. Yeah, publicly traded. Yes, of course. Yeah. I, so so well, I, I, and if not that mechanism, what other mechanism if there's going to so be? So look, one? I mean, that's I'll let Congress figure that out or the regulators. But, I mean, but you, have some, you have to have some thoughts on that. I ultimately I don't care where it resides. It just needs to happen. I'm I'm focused on the outcomes, not uh, not who's doing it. And and so it could end up in a couple different places. But at the at a bare minimum, you know, one of the biggest challenges with ransomware is we we just don't know the denominator. We don't know how many victims there really are uh, because there's no requirement to uh, to inform the government. And do private sector companies consider it a stigma to be burned? And that's one of the reasons they don't want to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, when you get a big hack, a major hack, um, you know, where it's publicly described for, you know, as the name of the company hack, you know, that's got to cross every CEO and every board and every general counsel's mind as soon as they uh, as soon as they discover they've been popped. Right. But my, my the way I'm thinking about it is, if I'm that CEO or if I'm that chief technical officer and I'm sitting on the board, I'm saying, hey, what are we doing so we're not in that category, number one? And number two, I want every company to have to report it. That way we all know the risk and we can all better assess the risk. I would be on the forward leaning side if I'm sitting in that boardroom, but maybe that's just me. No, I mean, so you're right, but but it's also um, you have to assume that you're going to have a bad day. Everybody has bad days eventually. <laughs> It's such a complex environment uh, and the threats are so numerous, but so you've got to plan for it. You got to prep for it. We have to make sure is that you can detect something, you can limit the damage, 
but more importantly, you can be transparent with, uh, with your customers, with the government, with the public. And it's, it, you know, because it's about trust and really, right. you know, you lose trust and it's hard to get back. I'm going to throw one more metaphor at you because anyone who's been a homeowner and not everyone in my audience has, but if you've ever been a homeowner, you worry about a leaky roof. And one of the things you worry about is some little part of a shingle or something gets loose and then water gets in and then you have a problem. And the metaphor I'm trying to think of, Chris, is these people that you describe as hoverers who are always looking, they're essentially looking for either a hole in a shingle or a flake in the paint on the outside of your house, right? And they're constantly there looking, 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 and then ready to pounce instantaneously. Is that a decent metaphor? I, man, you really like the metaphors, don't you? I do. Um, I'm on, I, I'm I get on it. kind of a roll. I get it. I, look, I mean, it, what you have is a, is a, is there are, you know, tons of people out there that are constantly scanning to your point to look for an opening. They're right. testing, probing, they're looking for openings and ways to get in. And so that's where that mindset of you're going to have a bad day, don't focus solely on keeping them out. You've got to build the blinds and traps throughout a layer defense model, right? You know, it's like, you know, I don't even want to make comparisons. You've, you've wrapped me into this analogy uh, <laughs> mindset. Look, the, the point is you want to prevent the bad guys from getting where they want to go Right. And if they get there, you stop them as quickly as possible. Understood. So fun and games. Uh, and we've done this before because you've been a guest on the show. So uh, if you have any new answers, I'm dying to hear them. Uh, so the last time you were on the show was heading toward the 2018 election. I think it's sometime 2017. Uh, have you read any books since then that you would characterize as particularly influential no. or enjoyable? I don't okay, think good. I've read much of anything. <laughs> I, you know what? Uh, other than other than documents and reports and whatnot. Uh, yeah. So I'll tell you what. There is a um, for anybody that's interested in disinformation. Uh, Thomas Ridd's book, uh, Active Measures. Yeah, Dr. Ridd is a professor at Johns Hopkins. It is really a uh, solid historical treatment of how the Russians, in particular, use disinformation uh, to further their political objectives. And since we last talked to you, anything you have streamed or watched that you are particularly enamored of, movie or streaming series or TV show? I mean, Ted Lasso is possibly the best TV in <laughs> excellent a decade. Excellent answer. Excellent Very answer. Very excited for season two. Yes, excellent answer. And uh, have your music tastes evolved since we last spoke to you? Meaning if you're in a car or a plane and you want to groove out on something, what are you listening to? It is. It, you know what? Last year uh, was rough when uh, Neil Pert, drummer of Yep. Uh, Rush passed away, so went through a pretty deep, uh, you know, back into the Rush catalog. But now I'm back to the same old, uh, you know, uh, Sturgill Simpson and uh, Turnpike Troubadours. Excellent. You can never go wrong with a deep dive into the Rush oeuvre. Chris Krebs, thanks. Thanks for tolerating all of my wacky, idiotic metaphors. You're not the only one. Uh, we'll see you next week, folks, on The Takeout. Thanks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.